Welcome. I'm Anna Marie Clifton, product manager at Yammer. And I'm Sandy McPherson, founder at Quib. And this is the Clearly Product Book Club podcast. Today, we are going to talk about the most recent book that we read, which is called Winning with Data, Transform Your Culture, Empower Your People, and Shape the Future. Uh, it was released in 2016. It's written by Tomas Tungus and Frank Bien. Bien, I guess, yeah. Bien? Bien? I'm not sure. Sorry, Frank. Tom is a partner at Redpoint, and Frank is CEO of a company called Looker. So this book, um, I was really excited to read it. I've been reading uh, Tom's blog for a long time now. Uh, and so I looked at his website uh, prior to the release to see exactly what he said about it and how he was thinking about the book as he was going about releasing it. And he said that he sort of thinks about the book as having three major sections. The first, he explores the historical challenges uh, faced by companies to use data. Second, uh, case studies of companies using data to win, so we can hopefully learn from them. And the third point, uh, guides for how to replicate those best practices in your team and your company. Um, So at a high level, um, what did you think about this book? (laughs) Uh, At a high level, I thought that this book was severely lacking in all of those claims. Okay. Uh, I I saw that, I mean, even just looking at the chapter heads and subheads, um, a lot of the book was supposed to cover how companies are winning with data and how you can replicate that. Uh, The historical challenges, those were, I mean, those were there, that was fine. But the other two points, I was really excited to see how other companies are winning with data, and I got, like, so little out of that. And then in terms of how to replicate the best practices, I felt that he did a really poor job enumerating what to do. Um, uh, The things that he said to do didn't seem very, I mean, they were directionally okay, but they didn't, like, give any nugget of information that I like would want to relate relate to someone who was working on this problem. Yeah, I guess for me, I thought that it was much more high level than I expected. Um, I think I anticipated it being more in the weeds and actually giving some the idea that one of the ideas that comes across in the book is the how to operationalize your data. And I felt that this book didn't actually help to operationalize any right. of the ideas in the book. Um, So that was a little bit lacking. There was some stuff where it was actionable. Um, The section around hiring, he spent a lot of time with like specific steps. Um, But I I think that was probably for me one of the only sections where it went into anywhere near the level of detail that I would um, expect from from this type of a book. Yeah, I definitely, I felt that it was strangely high level and high level at the places that it didn't need to be high level. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of high level case studies that provided really sh- like strangely applicable benchmarks for various things. Like if I wanted to start a sales team, sure. there were like some really interesting benchmarks in here that I would want to look at, but it wasn't necessarily, so it was high level around those kinds of things. And it felt like perhaps a good founder's handbook, mm-hmm. but it did not get onto a high level around like how to, how to really set up your data warehouses or like what to do and how to do it. And I just, Sure. My other major comment was around, it came across almost like, this is like a business case for using data. Mm. And it was very um, much like, here's some examples of like how and why you should even consider this path for your company. But that was sort of where it stopped. And so related to that, who do you think this book was written for? Who yeah. would you recommend it for? Yeah, again, I think it's written for founders, uh, a little bit on the earlier stage founders. And it's just, a, it's a good introduction to like the kinds of things you should be thinking about about for like a year and a half in advance of when you're actually going to do them. Um, And it maybe gives you some good search terms, Mm -hmm. maybe. Maybe it's something that like data teams should buy 
for their CEOs Mm -hmm. (laughs) to try and convince them to get on board with some things, perhaps. Um, It didn't feel super broadly applicable outside of that niche. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't think that it's, I mean, it's not really great for the layperson who's not like working in tech and working in tech in some level of agency. Sure. I would say it's for like the early CEO or for uh, a CTO to buy for their CEO to try and convince their CEO to be a different way. Yeah, I guess my, uh, related to that question, because it was so high level, my sort of like gut response was, I really hope that, I mean, most of the people that I know and interact with, for them, this book is like, I hope they already know. (laughs) Yeah, I would hope everyone who's like working in tech already knows all these things. Yeah, and so that made me sort of think that, okay, maybe this book then is actually meant to be more for people who are looking to tech as like bleeding edge innovators around companies Mm. um, and for people outside of tech to sort of be inspired by. And maybe that explains kind of the high levelness Hmm. of it all, because in that case, the the details don't actually matter if you're abstracting it to a completely different industry or type Hmm. of product or whatever. Um, And then, yeah, similarly, the other type of person who I think makes sense that this is for, I was chatting with a friend about this, and he was saying that in his mind, it's maybe more for um, data scientists themselves. So, yes, similar to kind of what you're saying about a CTO, where it's somebody who is working on a team and they have like a bunch of people coming to them all the time and asking them to like run queries and do all this stuff and they're like overwhelmed and the company around them doesn't recognize that there is another way Mm -hmm. um, to give this book to someone else who's working with them um, to help sort of highlight you know you don't have to be coming to me and I am a bottleneck and I know that but I I do not need to be right so it's almost like a defensive strategy that a data science could employ like giving this book to someone instead of having to like yep. walk them through exactly like how they're yeah and that's good it's like a, a third party kind of defending yeah. on your behalf yeah. yeah no I appreciate that yeah. I also think to your point about the um, bringing it outside industry it's perhaps like written for people who are in tech enabled companies yeah. and trying yeah. to like learn from yeah. high tech companies and what they're doing yeah. Um, yeah so I think it's yeah perhaps I was being a little bit too critical because I was coming at this book expecting it to be for people in tech sure. uh, and it just didn't seem to hit the the points that I wanted it to sure otherwise just some general comments otherwise um, I did it was probably like three quarters of the way through where I made a note in the margin and I was like okay I get it looker like thanks oh looker like, yeah is this like w- did I buy this book or is this a white paper for you that like <laughs> I know um, I made a note this was, whole thing feels like an advertisement yeah, for looker <laughs> it was a little bit much and I like the examples were fine um the problem was that came across as being biased and so then it yeah. led me to think that okay is the rest of this biased and are you potentially only covering ideas and aspects that like looker can like mm. implement well or yeah. something like it, it just felt a little potentially slanted to Looker. It really did feel like an advertisement for Looker. Is that Frank? Isn't doesn't Frank work? For, Frank is, is the CEO. He's the CEO of Looker. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it just it, I felt like they could have used that as more of an examples of like what they've learned in the industry about people uh, deploying Looker because Looker is a, a data infrastructure tool that allows uh, users to uh, hook up all their data inputs and be able to like query it. Um, and so I felt like they could have used that insight uh, and been like, here are like case studies of like eight different companies um, trying to to use different data infrastructure tools because they would have had that insight, but instead it was, here's how my tool can help you do this thing. My one final overall point was the last chapter about like how to pitch your startup. <laughs> For, at, at YC Demo Day specifically. I was like, what the fuck? What? Yeah. Um, so again, that sort of confused me because I was like, oh, like, because obviously that type of content is not meant for 
again, my two sort of big clusters around who I think mm-hmm. is the appropriate audience for this book, mm-hmm. non-tech startup people who want to understand and use data in the way that they've heard of like the mm-hmm. joys of data in startups, mm-hmm. and data scientists at companies. Neither of those groups care about pitching their company. Mm-hmm. So that sort of made me think, oh, maybe the intended audience actually is startup founders, which again, I was like, oh, if like there's startup founders out there who don't know this, I, I, I feel very <laughs> bad for It's I mean, it's the one-on-one. Um, I mean, maybe it's for like all the product hunt lurkers that like aspiring founders who are still looking for like information and resources and are using all these terms, but don't really know what they mean. Yeah. Maybe. Again, I, yeah. But it doesn't satisfy that use case. And it doesn't, I mean, if you're, if you're one of those people who's like not really working on, I, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. That chapter should not be in the book. Yeah. Zero I mean, percent. It was a bad chapter. Okay. <laughs> Good. Good. Glad, glad you agree on yeah. that. Okay. hundred percent. So one of the things that I wanted to highlight uh, that came up the whole entire book. I mean, in addition to sounding like a bit of an advertisement for Looker, it also is uh, almost like a philosophical treatise on like, why data is good, mm-hmm. right? And that's, I mean, it's called winning with data. It's for that, right? But he didn't really present any counterpoints. He didn't really illustrate ways in which this breaks down or places to be careful and things like that. Sure. Um, and one of the biggest things that I've come to terms with working in a very data-driven org is that like data is not right. Like, he keeps talking about, like, data as, like, the definitive correctness. Sure. But, like, it is not right. It, data is just numbers, and you have to interpret those numbers. And that interpretation can be right. It can be wrong. The underlying data can be right. It can be wrong. There's, like, so many factors here. Interpreting data, I mean, I'm a huge fan of data-driven companies. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I work at Yammer on purpose because I wanted to be in a place that was, like, very data to the core. The importance of data is being able to be more often right and do so faster, uh, and you use data as a shortcut to kind of proxy for rightness uh, as quickly as possible, and come out on top slightly more often than average, right? Mm-hmm. And so the the point that he like the fact that he didn't really address that or go into the fact that it's very easy to fudge things, it's very easy to misinterpret. Like data won't give you answers. You give you answers, and yeah. you use data as like a particular tool in that tool set. But it really, I mean, the whole book it, it seemed a little misleading in that way, and it was like trying to paint this very rosy picture of like there's this yeah. correct truth in the world, and mm-hmm. data will show it to you, and you just have to set up your org to collect this data and allow everyone to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like like the white horse galloping in to save you is data. Right. And like if you just can capture the the magical white stallion, he will like solve all of your problems. Right. Which is just absolutely not true. And the the point of data is like being able to move a little bit faster. To that end, it's only useful if you can act on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a point he did he did make uh, yeah, he that point. Yeah, about that a little bit, yeah. Yeah, towards yeah. the end and that I really appreciate it. I have like an underline, yes, this is the most important part of this book. Unless you're acting on it, data is useless. And one of the things is that it takes a lot of cultural upkeep. You have to in addition to like investing in the infrastructure in your or you have to continue to invest in every new person you're onboarding to go in that direction. I worry that a lot of people are going to read books like this and be like, oh, you know, everyone's talking about data. Here's a little bit about how to do it. Like, I'm going to set up my org to like collect data and then we'll like talk about it and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's, I mean, it's meaningless and a waste of time unless you're setting yourself up to like make a different decision because of that data. Like one of the major missteps that people make is like data for data's sake. Mm-hmm. And unless you're using that to make a different decision than you would have made otherwise without that data, it's a waste of your time. It's a waste of everyone's time. So one thing, so I have one like one counterpoint and then I have a bunch of, I have one point. That's like basically the same as yours. So the one counterpoint I would say is that for me, one of the things with Quib that I um, decided to do early on, and this was from advice from a couple people who are, you know, ex-LinkedIn data science, Mm ex-PayPal data science, like 
very good people mm-hmm. in terms of like valley um, level of expertise. Where for me, they were like, okay, you're just starting out. You don't necessarily have the resources right now to interpret and understand the data that your product is creating, mm. but you should collect it all. Mm. And so there, there is this idea of like data for data's sake when you're talking about recording data that otherwise, like if you don't start recording it now, you will not have it and mm. it will not be able to be useful for you down the road. Mm-hmm. So like I pay a fair amount of money for like pretty substantial databases to hold basically everything that happens on Quib such that I can you know, if and when I need to look at anything historical, I actually have that. Yeah. And so that's sort of like a little bit of this. I know it's not quite what you're saying about data for data's sake, but I think that sometimes it does make sense to at least track and store data. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm, um, I'm talking more so about asking questions. Like if you're asking questions without any dis- like definitive reason for why mm-hmm. you're asking those questions or right. actions that you're going to take based on those right. answers, yep. uh, that's a waste. But I definitely like if you can't even start the process if you don't have the data in the right. first place. And yeah. like granted, it does cost money, but those costs are yeah. diminishing yeah. <laughs> year yeah. over year. Which like, again, should... is one of the big points in the book about like how and why companies are now able to be so actionable around their data is that collecting it and processing it is very cheap and quick because yeah. of the various technologies that exist. Yeah. But it's funny, yeah, so basically, so I have a very similar point, so how I titled it was that the book makes people, I think it has the potential to make people a little bit too uh, like laissez-faire about just use data and to not actually think critically about how or why they are and it reminded me of this like what I will call a horror story where this friend of mine was telling me about he had a meeting so he's like lead engineer head of engineering something like that not the CTO but like actually manages all of the engineers and the data team Mm -hmm. and the two co-founders were like so we want you to make our company data driven Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) okay okay thanks bye and then like they just like left Huh. And I think, and this engineer was kind of like, what do, like, do, what, do you even know what that means? Right. Like, mm-hmm. what, are, what are you actually asking me for? And I think that was one of these examples where everyone is like, data will save the world. Right. And these co-founders clearly had, like, heard that. Right. Uh, the company was also, like, they were doing, like, pretty well. I think they raised an A. Maybe they had, like, $15 million in the bank. They had, like, just under 50 employees. And they were getting to the point where... I don't know if it was because they were going to have to raise more money and they didn't have the metrics or the hmm. like they weren't able to show progress in the way that they needed to and they hmm. realized like oh wait a minute we need to like be more data driven so hmm. that people can believe what we're doing is like accurate and ma- we're making good decisions. Mm-hmm. But this engineer was sort of like oh and they felt a little I think probably led astray hmm. by this like data movement. Um, the engineer felt led astray. Yeah, yeah, because like this in theory, like that person would have really enjoyed if their company had been data driven, but mm-hmm. now they're under this bizarro pressure from the co-founders to do like who knows what. The co-founders don't even really understand. Yeah. Um, it's not going to lead to a good outcome. Yeah. So I think there's there's two core facets of what data driven is. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he Sticks into this a little bit where there's like there's exploratory and there's confirmatory. Uh Uh, Confirmatory data exploration and data analysis is uh, more or less that falls into like the A/B testing buckets Mm -hmm. uh, and like what what all that means. We'll go into that definitely (laughs) a fair amount later. Uh, But then there's exploratory data analysis, which is giving your data team a data and b 
free reign Mm -hmm. to uh, muck around and try and draw out correlations and try to determine, I mean, build various models for churn, perhaps, or predictive models for upselling, things like that. I'm going to like distinguish between those paths. And I'm just going to go down that first path for a minute here, this confirmatory data analysis. The more that you can reuse and make anything that you learn in any one test applicable across the org, like that is where you get your benefits from data-driven development. Um, And that is all like very, very deep in culture. Like you have to put a lot of work into getting your culture set up so that A, people are doing tests accurately and correctly and like sure. actually learning things from them and B, that they're making decisions based on those tests that beyond like go beyond just those teams mm-hmm. and then C, that the other teams are also learning from each other yeah. and that so that the, spreads the around. sharing aspect is Exactly, yeah. exactly. You can't build that from like just a director of engineering. Like it's a lot of top-down work to set mm-hmm. up those expectations in the org. And so in that case, did you agree with the points that he made around hiring because the hire in theory what you're talking about is like making sure you have the right people and so he gives i forget which chapter it is but he spends a fair amount of time talking about hiring for a data-driven culture did you find that his points were on point were the points on point (laughs) um i didn't disagree with any of his points but i think they're misdirected um i think that i don't think you hire for a data-driven culture i think you build it internally because you can hire as many curious people as you want and not set them up for success i was actually really disappointed in how he i mean he has one chapter called the five steps to becoming data data-driven. And <laughs> what about that chapter, Anna-Marie? Well, what okay. did you notice? So there aren't five steps <laughs> in that chapter. Like, I read that chapter twice, and I still can't list out what the five steps are. There are no, like, subheads. Step one, step two, step sure. three. Like, there aren't. And I think and that, that is actually the same chapter where he goes into the hiring. And I agree. When you are setting your org up to be data-driven, you need to hire curious people. And there are, like, ways to set up to hire curious people. And that's great. But you can't expect curious people to come into the org and flourish. Um, so one of the things that he, I think, dramatically overlooked was the amount of work that orgs do building data-driven cultures and onboarding people to data-drivenness mm-hmm. within those cultures. And he, he called it out a couple times. He called out... So he talks about, like, data literacy and, like, building a shared lexicon or shared... Yeah. Yeah, data literacy. So he said the three things that you need to be a data-driven company are the the pipeline, the Mm top-down infrastructure. Um, That's one. The second one is the mindset. That's bottom-up data literacy within the org. And then three is this language around metrics, like this lexicon that people know. And then I argue all of those are Mm top-down. Like you have to onboard every new person to these metrics and you have to establish this data literacy and that that it's expected. Like people don't necessarily, even people who've worked in data and other companies aren't going to be literate in your environment. They're not going to know how to work in your environment. They're not going to know where the tables are or what they're called or all of these things. And that stuff, you know, he mentioned a couple of times that like Facebook has a data camp. So every new employee or every new employee in the engineering org, um, and that includes like product managers, et cetera, Mm -hmm. spend two weeks learning about how Facebook does data. And that's a lot of investment, like two weeks of a new employee's time. It's what it takes. Like the org has had to have set up these systems and processes around right. onboarding that they've done so much work to like establish. And I think he really, really, really skimmed over that and just talked about like, oh, mm-hmm. hire curious people. Like, yes, hire curious right. people and then set them up for success. In- yeah, because I was actually, I think that's one of the things too, where even though, yeah, I agree it was a little bit high level on that topic even though it was probably one of the topics that he went into more detail on. And it's, Mm. again, just sort of a, like, high-level comment would be, one of the things I kept thinking as I was reading this book is, is this sort of, like, the introductory baseline book? And then afterwards, will there be follow-on books Mm. about, like, culture? Will Mm. there be follow-on books about, like 
all of the other aspects that he talked about because it seems like I mean it's a really short book too it's like under 150 pages yeah right like it's really short I'm like he clearly could have built all of those out yeah but chose not to and I don't know if it's because of audience expectations hmm. or what but I was kind of like because there's no like physical constraint so that was one thing that I was just kind of like scratching my head yeah over it feels I mean it feels a little unfinished mm-hmm. in that way like he had these three different things he wanted to talk about but then none of them like really were well resolved and then he also threw in this random chapter about how to pitch YC or how to <laughs> how to pitch at YC demo day just like the weirdest way to end this book and then he had all these like five ways to set up a data-driven culture which like he literally did not list them yeah and then instead went into like here's how to hire people and like maybe that was one of the five ways and then the other like he so I I really just don't think it was finished honestly and I think he hit deadlines and published something Um, so maybe there will be follow on books and that would be Yes, I'm being a little, a little harsh here. Um, but and, and so one of the things also is that like every time that I go to a lecture on data or A-B testing or things like that or read a book or a blog post or things, um, I'm really struck by how much I assume that people already knew. Yeah. But it's still like really, really new information. Yeah. Like the questions that audience members ask after what I consider an incredibly basic introduction to A-B testing. Mm-hmm. It's shocking. It's just like absolutely shocking. Like I just feel like this, there's there's so much information out there in the field. Like how do people not know this stuff? But I think that there's just still a lot that people haven't figured out, and that yeah. we need to keep publishing information on. So yeah. basically, my main takeaway from this book is like maybe I should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's interesting to yeah to your point of like expectations. I remember I had was this phone call. I think it was in July. So like yeah, like six months ago, and it was with the founder of a startup that was I don't know what. The word is portfolio buddy, portfolio peer, peer, portfolio whatever. I like buddy, buddy, portfolio buddy. So we were in the same portfolio. We have we share an investor, and so the investor introduced us because he was doing a bunch of um, news email stuff. The thing that got me really like I was like insulted by was he asked me on the call. He was like, "Oh, so so have you ever AB tested your subject lines?" And I was like, dude, like, I have literally sent millions of emails. And you think, like, the assumption that I have never tested any of them? I was like, what? And so I took it as, like, an insult. Yeah. But it's funny, to your point, it's like maybe, and I mean, he was based in New York. New York people are known to be a little less, like, aware of these types of things. And so maybe that was it. But, yes, I share the... uh, I'm often, yeah, jaw on the ground, the types of questions in terms of people's just, like, basic understanding of anything related to data or metrics. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the reasons I think this happens is that there's a lot of fake it till you make it-ness, and there's a lot of familiarity with these words. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone knows the term A-B testing. Sure. Nobody really understands it from my experience. I mean, even a a lot of people that I interview for PM roles, they just they'll use the word mm, interesting. and they'll use the term and they don't know what they're talking about when we like dig into like how would you set this up and then like what are the trade-offs and blah 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 so I think that it's just it comes from this valley expectation that like you can't admit at any point that you're anything less than killing it so you can't ask questions that admit like you, you don't know something and so people like, use these words and banter them about and then in the end they have no idea what they're talking about and nobody knows what they're talking about unless you've worked <laughs> in one of these orgs and like it's so the, the amount of things that you learn even just in a month working in an org that really does data-driven development it's yeah. it's in the kool-aid here yeah. <laughs> and then do you know so as a little aside 
Do you know much about the founder of Yammer and sort of his history with data? Uh, yeah, I mean, so the... Because the... I think that's like an interesting point, like if people don't actually know much about Yammer and know how and why, um, like Anna Marie's talking about it as being very data focused, mm-hmm. I think knowing a little bit about David Sachs is informative. Well, so David Sachs was one of the PayPal mafia, mm-hmm. as they say. Yeah. Um, early PayPal uh, formed Yammer. Yammer was one of those super fast-growing startups with a lot of personality. David Sachs himself had a lot of personality, so there's a lot of lore around it. And I've, I've never personally worked with David Sachs. He left um, years before I joined the company. But there's a lot of lore in the company around how if he wanted to ship something, you'd just ship it. And so it was really, it was just like his opinion against your opinion. And his opinion was so much bigger and stronger and better that like, there was no pushing back against him. And so a lot of the impetus for the data-drivenness of Yammer came from the desire within the org to push back against the personality of David Sachs. He's pro-data. So if you want to be able to say, like, no, I think that's wrong. Oh, so to be able to build a case against to, him because he's exactly. so strong. Because okay, he's so it. strong, in order to have a case against him, got you it. have to have data and you have got to have it. good data and you have to have a lot of it. And so there was just a big push within the org to build out uh, an intense uh, data pipeline. And the infrastructure that Yammer built to do data-driven development now runs Microsoft Microsoft data-driven development. When Microsoft acquired Yammer, the team that built those systems out was absorbed into the larger Microsoft and now services many workloads other than just Yammer. So we're now like a consumer of that team's work. Mm-hmm. And that was like a big, again, as lore has it, that was a big impetus for the acquisition was like Microsoft was trying to figure out how to do data and like Yammer, it's an analogous tool that fits really well into the suite, is doing it really well. Let's acquire them. We'll get all of that as well as how they do their data. So... One of the points that I have, and it's funny, it's related to what you're saying about David Sachs. So chapter one of the book, not the, like the intro, but chapter one opens with, there's, there's quotes at the beginning of each chapter. And it's one of my favorite quotes that I've ever heard about startups. And it's from Jim Barksdale, who was the CEO of Netscape. And it's, if we have data, let's look at data. If all we have are opinions, let's go with mine. Uh, (laughs) I know, I love that. Which I love. And I think, again, to this point of, like, people, I think, can potentially get overly excited about data, and you have this idea where, like, oh, we need data, and we're basically paralyzed, and we can't make any decisions unless we don't have data. But a lot of the time, you won't have any data. Yeah. And you're going to have to make a decision. And so that was something where it was not talked about at all. Like basically, according to this book, if you were to build a company from scratch via this book, you would end up building databases. And that's all you would get to build because you would fail before you actually even built a product. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Because there was no exploration outside of data being, again, this like white golden pony coming in to save you. Um, and your company. Just the idea that like, yeah, making a decision with your gut is like, okay, sometimes. And like, that's what you're (laughs) going to have to do. Yeah. And like, go for it. And that's great. And so he didn't explicitly say that. And I feel like it's something again, where in the climate that we're in right now, it needs to be explicitly said and people need a little bit of like permission to feel that that is actually okay to like go into a meeting and say like, we don't have the data. It's too expensive for us to get the data. Here's how and why we think we should do this other thing. And I think that sometimes that that's what you're going to have to do. There's something around like resources. Like sometimes you don't have enough people, like maybe you can collect all the data, but you don't have anybody to analyze it. Maybe you don't, maybe you're at a point where you're unsure of what data actually needs to be prioritized. And then you like, there's so many things that could go wrong. And he's talking about basically like a pristine perfect world yeah. that doesn't really exist. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so, maybe like five companies in the world total yeah, that, that are could like, actually do th- like exactly. follow everything in this book. Right. That that it's it's neither too basic nor like yeah. way too early. Yeah. 
Because I remember I had this like one interaction with this early startup founder and he was talking about how he was trying to make a decision and he was collecting a bunch of data to try to figure out how to make the decision. And like he would have to wait because his product was new and small. And again, in your case, it's probably like you would probably see this with maybe like certain features that don't have a lot of use where he would have to wait like a month Mm -hmm. to make a decision. And I was like, dude. No, you don't have that like, time. Don't wait. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you. And the other thing, too, that really bothered me about, again, not sort of exploring that at all is that, OK, well, what are your other options? Your other options are like, look, talk to other companies, look mm-hmm. at benchmarks, mm-hmm. like look at your own historical data of like similar features. Like there's other things you mm-hmm. can do if it seems that you might not have the potential to actually answer the question with data. Yeah. Um, and really what you do there is customer development based yeah. practices. Yeah. Like there yeah. are, so this is something that, um, a lot of people, I, I've actually started talking to a number of other companies within Microsoft that are like, you know, maybe starting up or like trying, trying to get into the space. And I've had several like Skype conversations with people who are like, Oh, Hey, you're doing data in a really interesting way. Like, what can I learn from you? And I've, I've gotten to the point now where I start out by asking like, how many users do you have? Right. Because that the order of magnitude of users that you have totally changes the conversation. Yeah, and most yeah. people that are having this, that, that are like reaching out to ask these questions don't realize that they are nowhere near the ballpark of the number of users yeah. they need in order to make some of these things happen. Yeah. Because it's just the du jour thing to do. And that's so frustrating because it's like you just waste so much time and you'll run around like, so people within these companies are frustrated because they think they're supposed to be data driven and maybe it's not happening from the top down. So they're like, well, let's see if we can like make this happen. And then they put a lot of effort into it and then realize at the end of the line, that like, oh, we're nowhere near in the position where we should be doing this. We should be, and there are other things that you should do. One thing that happens is people believe that, oh, we have to wait until we collect a ton, a ton of data on this one thing that we have a question about, and then we'll wait a month until all the data comes in, and then we'll find an answer. And I think that that's a little bit backwards. I think that what you have to do is if you understand how to work with data, one of the things that you'll recognize is that you need a lot of data to have something significant. And therefore, you should start testing things. And the only things that you can actually test are things that have a lot of data. And so even if you don't have a lot of users, like, and so maybe you can't actually elicit some sort of learnings from looking at clusters of users. But if you look at all of those users as one group, maybe all of the actions that that group takes can give you something that has statistical significance. And so it's one of these things where when you start testing things, what you want to do is you want to go, and, and you're limited in terms of getting to uh, statistical significance, is you want to go top of funnel. So when you have um, something that you want to test that's further down the funnel, Probably, potentially, again, if it's like early, you won't have the data that you need to test those things and like too bad. And like you cannot apply data in those cases. But at the same time, what you need to do is you need to just think more top of funnel and move up further in the funnel. And those are the things that you can test with data. And so in the case of something like Quib, like I may not be able to test something like members activities on the final five links of the email digest sent on Fridays, but I can, I can run some experiments on the landing page because lots of people hit that page, members, non-members, there's a, that, is, that is by far the part of the product that sees the most action and there's the most data collected around it. So for me, I found it a little bizarre that like he doesn't talk about that. He talks about like, you must be t- statistically significant, but he didn't go down the route of therefore, you need to only test things that have a lot of like action 
on them. Yeah. I had a point here that I did not like his way of explaining how to run a data-backed experiment. Mm. I said it was too technical on some levels and Mm -hmm. didn't address any of the high-level needs. Mm. And so exactly that, where he didn't really dive into, like, here's how you want to think about testing. Mm -hmm. He got into, like, here's how you measure the (laughs) p-value. And I'm like, nobody besides your analyst really needs to know that. And, like, I mean, we talk about p-values a lot here. Um, I did before at previous jobs as well. Uh, and I have enough like fluency and literacy around that to be able to like uh, dig and know where to dig and know where to push. And mm-hmm. that's like the importance of the data literacy across the org that's really important. Yeah. But in terms of like why to run an experiment, where to run an experiment, when to run an experiment, and when not, I didn't think you did a good job. So I have listed out, <clears throat> here's how you do it. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to walk through this here because yeah. I don't know, I'll probably turn this and, into and a just, blog post. And also I have one little aside as well, which is that... The other thing is like what you're talking about, like in your org structure, the only person who needs to actually understand how a p-value was calculated is the analyst. In my case, where you know I'm one person, my like quote unquote analysts mm-hmm. are SAS tools that I use. Exactly, and you're all using Optimizely or that like- I'm using. They all have statistics. They all show me like what range I'm operating in, and right. like I don't actually ever have to calculate that. Mm-hmm. I have to have a little bit of an understanding of what it is, and maybe that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to show, like, where does this come from? So mm. when you see it, you understand it, maybe. Some people think like to think that way, um, where they really need to understand right, like, the how system. and why. Yeah. Um, but it was, again, even, like, I'm just, I guess, confirming that, like, even in my case, I see and I deal with those numbers all of the time, but the, like, relevancy of where they came from once you get an initial, and maybe that's what this is, it's just an initial introduction to, like, by the way, you'll see these numbers and this is what they mean. Yeah, I just, I felt like he was trying to explain to you how to do it. Right. Like, how to instrument it. Sure. Which is, like, way too technical for how high level he was trying to be, and then the high level stuff he actually missed. Sure. So. Okay, so, onward. So, Anna Marie has... How to do data-driven testing. Oh, Okay. So this is written from the perspective of someone who has analysts to work with, a lot, enough users to work with, uh, enough data coming through, and like systems instrumented such that you can do these kinds of tests. So if you are in an environment where you can do these kinds of tests, you probably already know this stuff. If you're trying to get into those environments, you might not. And you might be questioned about this in perhaps an, uh, an interview setting. So here's how to do it. So first of all, you start with some reason why you're going to do an experiment. And so this could come from upper management or you have like a personal vendetta and you really want to try something. <laughs> personal vendetta? I mean, yeah, there's definitely things in my product that uh, previous people instituted that I think are terrible ideas oh, from okay. four years ago. And okay. I'm like, I'm going to test something else. Okay. Um, and if you can move quickly enough in the org, you can get those things through. Sure. Uh, so so for whatever reason, you start with an, an, an idea of what you want to experiment on and why. The, th- the first thing you want to do is determine how many users would be affected by this. So you do like a little bit of easy querying to see like, how many people are actually clicking in this overflow menu on their profile settings page? Because if that is so far into the funnel that you don't have a large enough user base to get statistically significant data in a reasonable time frame, you should not run that as a test. And then you should make an educated decision about what you should do, right? And so this is to your points about like, yeah. pick in the funnel where you're gonna test according to how many people you have. So look, at, look into the data and see what your usage is on that feature before you decide if you're gonna even test it at all. And then if you're not gonna test it, that's fine. That's fine to make decisions without testing, but like just make an educated decision about that. Next, you want to establish a hypothesis for what you expect to happen and why you expect it to happen. So a good hypothesis should have a change that you expect to see in user behavior, the mechanism for that change, the thing that you're actually going to adjust or um, be testing, 
and then why you expect that mechanism to change that user behavior. There's a whole other thing about how to make good hypotheses. We're just going to skip past that, but it's very important to establish in advance what your hypothesis is, and then determine criteria for what is going to have to happen in order to ship this experiment. So you want to list out, like, what are the success criteria? X metric moves up, Y metrics moves down, Z metric stays flat at worst, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really important for org health that you establish all of those in advance, as well as like list out the metrics you're going to watch just to make sure you didn't break something somewhere else. And then do you want to just explain a little bit um, about these steps in terms of who else is involved as you go about? Because you're talking about this as if it's like a, it sounds like it's like a solo person. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, from the beginning, I was talking about determining why you're doing an experiment that comes from like, perhaps you're at a product, perhaps it comes from an engineer. The ideas come from anywhere. Figuring out how many users are going to be affected by this. Um, uh, it depends on how your org is set up. I can run some queries for figuring out. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to look at log events. If you go into inspect element and look at the network tab and see like what happens when you click on something, you can see what the log event is called. And then you can go into your tables and run a query on like how many people do that in the past month. So you can do that on your own as a PM, or you can work with an analyst. They usually have a lot. Maybe they just know offhand or have done that recently, and they can just pull it really quickly. Establishing the hypothesis is, again, something that you'll do more or less on your own. Mm -hmm and then validate with an analyst. They'll poke holes in your hypotheses. <laughs> they do a really good job of that. Um, and then working in an org with a lot of PMs, there's a really great benefit of being able to have other PMs look at your hypothesis. We have um, a process here called Product Council where we pull in three or four other PMs to look at an early spec, which is mostly just a hypothesis and like a feature definition. And then we get like really strong feedback on that. Again, determining what criteria will have to be met in order to ship the feature is also something that you would do solo as a PM and then get some advice and consent from your analyst as well as other PMs. At this point, usually go through like some vetting process with head of product or someone up. Just make sure, hey, like, did we think about this holistically? Is someone who's thinking about the whole org sure. and the whole product think that this is you know, in line with what we're working on? So all that is like the pre-work that you do. Um, and side note, one of the most important parts of that is like getting a lot of thought to what different things could happen in the metrics and what you would do given different types of metric moves. Mm -hmm. um, because that just makes all of the decisions later a lot easier with your engineers, with your analysts, with everyone who's involved in the project. And is the idea there also to like remove potential bias at the end once you're making a decision and you haven't previously identified what actions you'll take if and when ABC happens? Yeah, it also is more about getting alignment with the team because okay. if ABC happens and like you assumed you were going to do, you were going to ship it based on that, but mm -hmm. then you're, for example, the classic example of this is would you ship a flat test? Right. And what that means is if you A-B test this and the treatment is basically null, like there's no difference from treatment and control, would you ship this feature or would you kill it? And um, it's really important to establish in advance. A lot of times shipping a flat test is a big win for like performance reasons, like your engineers get rid of a whole bunch of code they've been trying to get rid of for years or something like that. But then in other cases, it's like product has this idea that we think is going to be better. And if we if it tests flat, then analysts will get kind of like, you can't ship that. It's not any better. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make the code complexity go down. Um, so it's just really important to establish up front like, what expectations are on sure. the team so that you don't have a whole bunch of banter back and forth later that's like divisive and pointless. So then once you've like established all that up front, implement and turn on the experiment, obviously that's most of the work because that's when your engineers get involved. And again, when I'm talking about experiments, I'm talking about you have some group of users, usually let's say 50% of users, that get a regular experience. And then 50% of users, when they see this page, they see the new experience. And that's the A and the B. Uh, it's really surprising how many people don't know that, that that's what A-B testing is. Is showing an experience. Who are you hanging out with, I Anna am Marie? not <laughs> kidding. I am not kidding. 
Um, it's really surprising. So let it run until you have enough users to evaluate or until you have enough time to look at your metrics. Uh, so a lot of times we're looking at retention metrics, which we want to see to, over a two-week time span to get better confidence. So even though we'll have plenty of data within like a day or two, we really want to see like how does this affect users over time. Um, so we usually run tests for two weeks here. And then look to see which metrics moved, to what degree, and with what degree of confidence. So to what degree is, again, like, is this 2%, is this 5%? Degree of confidence is your p-values um, if you're doing a p-value-based test. It's really important to note here that a one degree, like a 1% metric move can be a big move. Um, and that seems really counterintuitive if you're outside the industry or you're not working with large user bases. But if you can affect users' behavior even 1% on something that's like a really core metric, that can actually be a really big deal. Um, not like a vanity metric, like did they click the button or did they not click the button, but did they actually change their behavior over time with your product? And then after that happens, you'll usually go back and forth with your analyst a couple times trying to understand any anomalous things that happened because no matter how much pre-work you do, you'll end up finding some things that you didn't expect. And then there's a lot of investigation that you can dig into like, okay, well, we expected this metric to go up, but we also expected this metric to go up with that one. And the fact that they moved in opposite directions points to something really funky because sure. how could there be more group joins but fewer group visits? Like sure. that doesn't make any sense. And so you'll have to dive into like what happened there. Um, and then in the end, and this is the biggest part if you're trying to promote a data-driven org, in the end you have a large discussion with a larger team um, and possibly pulling people from other teams as well into the narrative behind the data because the data is not the answers. The narrative is the answer. And so you bring a lot of people into that discussion sing them their, your narrative, ask them for feedback, ask them for critique, ask them to push back against that and see if you can come up with something that the org decides is like what happened and why, and then make your decision about shipping it, killing it, iterating on it, and spread that around the org. Dun, 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 dun. How to do testing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this, it sounds like this is a process that's been like over time, like perfected inside of Yammer. Yeah, I mean, if you think about how many feedback loops it takes to get good at something or mm -hmm. like establish something, like right now I have something like nine different features that are being tested. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, there's just a lot. And I mean, that's actually, that's a lot. That's a way above average. I had a bunch of little things that I was working on. But on at any given point in time, most PMs have at least two to three different things that are being tested in the product. Sure. So there's just so much of this happening all the time that this just like builds up the expectation in the org around uh, data-driven discussions. Sure. So it sounds like, um, so yeah, so to me, all of that is like, yes. That's what it is. Um, and so you, but it, it sounds like you found that there's a lot of people who don't have that as like a baseline experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I mean, a lot of this is coming from my expectations in um, going to like PM meetups or interviewing potential candidates, um, sometimes people coming from out of industry, or a lot of times people coming from being a PM at a company that didn't have this setup, like didn't have infrastructure for data analysis, maybe a, like a pre-product market fit company with like five to 20 people. They were the first PM. It's, I mean, unless you've worked in this environment or done the research, you're not going to know. Mm -hmm. This is just like how it's done. But this is very much so how it's done. Also, I just have have to say that the idea of a five to 20 person company pre-product market fit and they're hired as a PM just makes me cringe. Mm, yeah. <laughs> most, I think most orgs don't tend to have a PM until like some of the hire for PM from the outside until like 30 or 40. But a lot of people will come in as like customer success or something like that and then like move into the PM role mm. for a year or two and then try to like apply for a PM role at a larger company that's doing product more like this. They're very, very, very different skills though. Sure. Like being able to make good decisions 
based on your intuition and like knowing your customers. It's very different from being able to make good hypotheses to test. Sure. Yeah. Are there any of those steps that you think are maybe like, would you say you can only do these if you're X type of startup or like, have you run into anyone where you've talked about this and they've said like, oh, I can't do that because of ABC? So your question is around how, if there are any types of orgs that can't do these kinds of tests. Yeah, like I'm just curious what you've heard pushback on on those Mm -hmm. steps. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a few things. So first of all, there's particular features that you can't do these kinds of tests on. Like if there's a feature around uh, um, like a social component that some people have access to inviting, like asking you to connect with them. Like imagine LinkedIn A-B tested the ability to like send an invite to connect. Like if you were inviting someone to connect who didn't have that feature, like the whole system breaks, right? So like there's things like that that are interconnected between users that you can't test. There are things where, I mean, there's a big discussion with SaaS products uh, or enterprise SaaS products around, can you test at the user level or do you need to test at the network level? Mm, Like maybe you need to enroll different networks into like 50% of your networks get uh, put in the control and 50% of the networks get put into the treatment and then you see how those networks behave over time. Different companies have different opinions of that. We don't do that here at Yammer and one of the reasons is that our networks are like, networks are vastly different. And so even if you did a, a, like an even 50-50 split uh, on those networks, like some networks are just more predisposed to like behave a certain way and they sure. have like culture built up around that. So it's hard to, to develop a single product for every user if you follow like network-based cultures. But for example, like Asana, does network level testing almost exclusively. So one interesting thing to note is that when people run their work and their companies and their jobs on your product, and then you test removing something to see if it's better for them, like some people might have built an entire workflow around a feature and not having it can like destroy their productivity and their ability to make money. So it's like very, very different thinking about how to test things in an enterprise environment than how to test things in a social environment. Um, We just have to be a little bit more careful thinking about like, are there ways that this could really negatively impact users' livelihoods? Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. This is the Clearly Product Book Club podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Clearly Product. And I am Sandy McPherson, founder at Quib. You can find me on Twitter at Sandy Mac, S-A-N-D-I-M-A-C. And I'm Anna Marie Clifton, product manager at Yammer. And you can find me on Twitter at Tweet Anna Marie.